This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Welcome to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. I'm Cheryl Kuhlman. And I'm Sandy Hunt. And we are here live every Thursday morning from 8 to 10 Eastern. And then we're playing during the week, either on the web or the app or other ways you can get us. Yes, podcasts. Check out our website soon coming. Some yeah. summaries of shows and podcasted versions. You could fill your day with Dollars and Change. It would be you inspirational could. and informative. Indeed it Indeed. would. So let me fill you in on our guest today. Um, our first guest, Kurt LaBelle, will join us uh, as soon as we're done with the intro. He's the managing partner at the Global Health Investment Fund, and that we'll talk about the work in providing finance to health to enhance the healthcare industry. So now I'm going to welcome Kurt Kurt LaBelle to the show. Welcome, Kurt. Cheryl, Sandy, great to be here. I Good. I you're, you're having me, and I agree this is uh, inspirational stuff that you do, so thanks for all your work. Well, tell us about your inspirational stuff. You're with the uh, Global Health Investment Fund. Tell us about the fund and when it got started. Okay, so the fund had its uh, final closing at the end of 2013, so we're about four and a half years into it. So good amount of time to, to really have some lessons learned. Yes, absolutely. So four and a half years in, uh, we, we are a venture and growth capital fund. Uh, we are targeting investments into innovative uh, medical devices, pharmaceuticals, vaccines, medical diagnostics that are compelling from a financial perspective, but also can serve clear needs uh, for the developing world. So our, our two metrics by which we judge every single investment are, one, is it financially compelling? Do we think this can generate positive returns? Uh, and two, is it going to have impact in the developing world and serve a clear need there? And so there are a lot of factors that obviously go into those two key components, but that's really what drives uh, our investment uh, in every deal. Yeah. And Kurt, you've got you know tremendous professional experience on the board of a number of healthcare companies. What what triggered this fund's creation? What was the you know problem you saw, experience you had that led you to say? there's a need for capital to be directed in this new and innovative way. Well, it's interesting because I was uh, not the one who came up with the idea. I was the fortunate person who was brought in uh, once a lot of the tough work had been done. <laughs> so, but, but it all started uh, with the Gates Foundation. So the Gates Foundation, is, as you know, is, is really changing the world out mm -hmm. there, is helping to eliminate diseases that have plagued the world for, for centuries or um, uh, millennia, really, and have done a fantastic job, but uh, they really wanted to see if there could be a for-profit fund set up that could really prove a point that you can uh, address some critical needs in the developing world while creating sustainable companies that are generating positive returns from an investment perspective. And so they coordinated uh, the capital raise and really put together a, a blue-chip set of investors, uh, ranging from J.P. Morgan to Pfizer, Merck, GSK, Grand Challenges Canada, KFW, the German Bank, and a number of others. And so put together this fund to say, hey, let's go out and prove that uh, we can be a for-profit fund and also make sure that these products get to the people who need them most uh, in the developing world. And so now we've, uh, as, as we mentioned, it's uh, four and a half years into the, the fund's life, and we have uh, 10 investments. 
and uh, have have portfolio companies that are addressing things from cholera to cataracts to snake bites. So uh, really, really pleased with the way things have gone. And so let's dive a little bit deeper into some of these these investments that you've made or the kinds of companies you're looking at. You talked about um, both the creation of these these products, but then also getting them to the people who need them. And that sort of last mile delivery is often a real challenge in, in healthcare and, and all sorts of uh, impact mm-hmm. areas when you're in the developing world. Are you really focusing more on the, the manufacturers, the people who are creating the vaccines, the products, the treatments? Or do you also talk um, invest in people who are helping to get it to, to the people who need it? Uh, we invest in the in the companies that are manufacturing the products, but as part of our investment, we make sure that there's a way to get the products to the people who need them. And as you mentioned, that last mile can be really difficult, and 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 that goes into our assessment of each company. So when we look at at uh, investment opportunities, when we say, hey, this has to be made available in the developing world, a lot goes into that. So it has to have a fairly low price point. Uh, to be feasible there. It has to be pretty easy to use. Uh, so we, we won't invest in things where it requires a fellowship-trained physician uh, to, to implant it. This has to be something that can be uh, implemented and, and used by a, a fairly low-trained healthcare worker. But as, And then as it relates to that last mile point, uh, this has to be something that can be durable. Uh, but as we go through the investment uh, assessments, we, we look at the consumers, uh, we look at the distributors, and in a lot of cases, we will look at whether some of these large international organizations have the distribution in place, and we can plug these things in. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll give one example of that. We, we made an investment in a company called EU Biologics, which developed a, uh, an oral cholera vaccine. And one of the reasons we were interested in that is that we knew there was a real effort uh, from the WHO and from uh, country-specific uh, purchasers to start stockpiling and to have uh, a cholera vaccine ready in the event of a, uh, a disaster like a, a, an earthquake or, or flooding that can uh, contaminate the local um, water supply or just to be ready in places where cholera is, is endemic to the area. And so we knew that distribution was in place and that there would be demand. It's just they needed a, a low-cost vaccine, which uh, fortunately we were able to, to support. Yeah, and for our listeners who aren't familiar with this last-mile concept, in case that's jargon that folks aren't familiar with, sometimes this is literally referring to a mile, but it may be sort of mile or miles. And and it's the concept that you may have a product that's very valuable. We use vaccines as an example, and they are delivered to a hospital um, in, you know, in, in Africa and intended to really be able to help this population. It might even be the appropriate volume of vaccines to be able to help the population, but maybe they need to be refrigerated or the roads are only paved for a 10-mile radius right. around the right. hospital. And the people who need them are 25, 35 miles out where you don't have roads and infrastructure. You may not have energy sources to keep things refrigerated. And so we've seen a lot of market failures in what is now known as this, quote unquote, last mile, because products that are um, that have been created, issues that could be prevented or treated are not done so because of this logistical difficulty. So I'm wondering, you know, as you are learning, Kurt, about all of these um, challenges and opportunities, 
beyond the 10 portfolio companies you've invested in, how are you are you helping to sort of share this knowledge with the Gates portfolio? Because they have so much going on. How are the things that that GHIF is learning being shared with the broader impact community? Yeah, we're, we're, we're absolutely sharing. I, I, I would say that uh, w- we benefit from our relationship with the Gates Foundation much more than, than they uh, benefit <laughs> from their relationship with us. But who and, couldn't say that about their relationship <laughs> with the Gates Foundation, one might ask? But, yeah, and, you know, that's one of the fantastic things about our fund is we're, we're a small group, but we have such an amazing roster of, of people and organizations uh, tied into our, our group through our, our various committees and and from our investors, and so we can, uh, if we're looking at an opportunity, uh, and it's in a space where the Gates Foundation has expertise, uh, within a couple of days we can be on the phone with someone there who is a, a world expert, and they share information with us. We try to share our viewpoints uh, more from a, a commercial perspective and an investment perspective, uh, but it's it's really a, a fantastic relationship, and, and the same goes for a number of of other organizations with whom we have uh, tight relationships, but but you're right. We we do try to get out there and speak with folks and and share the idea that you can create these sustainable companies um, while developing products that that serve the needs of those who are are living in resource limited settings, and that's that's really a, a pioneering concept because I, I think people have typically thought of for-profit investing as one category and then kind of these philanthropic yep. efforts uh, to serve the needs of, of people in the in the developing world is a completely separate category. And we're at the interface of, of those two and, and really proving out that, that you, you can do both. Um, not in every situation, uh, but in many situations it is possible. Yeah, and certainly if you're able to find the places where the where you can build a market and get some financial returns, then the ones for which there aren't those similar opportunities can be more directly focused on by the philanthropic aspect. But I think you raise a, a really interesting point here because I I, uh, I was actually thinking about a conversation I was having with a friend who, um, when we were talking about impact investing, she, she kind of had a negative reaction. She was sort of like, well, wh- why make poor people pay for things? Why not just give it to them? I mean, how can how can you make money off of poor people? And that was a moral condemnation, not a mm-hmm. not a sort of practicality Market issue. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so I think that's it's um, it is something that I think has to be proven out, mm-hmm. but also explain to people why this approach really matters. Right? It's yeah. not it's not something we want to rely on philanthropy for. Sure. And I'm curious, you know, Kurt, we we read that. There's a, a particularly uh, a particular focus of your fund on products that have this dual market potential, um, where they have a clear you know public health impact on those at the base of the pyramid, um, but also have high value in high earning countries or have a, a real sort of market return potential. Tell us a little bit about that, and I'm particularly curious if there's anything you learn from your base of the pyramid um, communities and and focus that you put to work. Um, that helps generate revenue in some of these, uh, you know, higher higher return markets. Yeah, absolutely. So we we, we get asked that quite frequently um, in terms of you know how how do your companies make money if if they're going after conditions that affect people in the developing world? But and, and there are a few ways. But the the two main ways are one uh, the volumes can be extremely right. high. Mm-hmm. So even even if the the margins aren't as good as you would see in the developed world. The volumes can be very high, and you can have a very profitable com- company. 
But the second one is, is the one that you mentioned. It's, it's where there are these dual market opportunities where the product is uh, needed in the developing world, but it's also serving a, a clear need uh, and there's a, a real demand in the developed world. And I'll, I'll give one example of where innovation to serve the needs of those in a, in a low resource setting um, has translated into a very compelling and attractive product in the developed world. And that's one of our portfolio companies called Atomo Diagnostics. And Atomo if you, is, is focused on blood-based diagnostics. So uh, testing via blood for different disease conditions, they, they can test. Uh, HIV is the one that they're, they're focused on right now. But if, if you think about how a traditional blood test is, is done, you, you prick the finger, uh, then you have to collect the blood with a little tube, you have to collect the right volume, transfer it over to a test strip, put it on the test strip in the right place, and then usually you put a, a buffer solution on that. So even though each one of those steps is fairly straightforward and easy, when you put them all together, uh, there's, there's room for, for error. And the error rates are typically above 30% when, when people are doing these. And so what, what Otomo did is they, they were really focused on the developing world, and they said, we need to simplify this so that this can be used, so that testing can be done by, by patients themselves or by low-trained healthcare providers, and, and we need to remove all these different pieces. We need to make it automated and simplified. So they combined the, the, the Lancet, uh, the collection tube, the, the test strip, the buffer solution, so that all of that is into one handheld uh, device that is extremely easy to use. Um, they now have it uh, approved in Europe. It's being sold in South Africa and Kenya. And the idea was to produce this at a, a, a low enough price point so they can make it for about a dollar uh, and, and uh, also make it easy to use, as I mentioned. But what was interesting is in, in the process of doing that, of making something so easy to use, they discovered that, hey, there's, there's actually a, a big demand for this uh, in the developed world. Mm -hmm. And so uh, as part of their approval in Europe, and eventually they'll, they'll be uh, getting approval here in the U.S. as well, but uh, they will be selling this uh, to uh, high-income consumers um, where these self-test HIV tests are sold in, in many drugstores throughout Europe and, and around the world. And I think that's a, a great example of uh, how when you start out with the mindset of, I need to make this easy to use, inexpensive, durable, that's great for the developing world, but in many cases it also translates into a, a compelling equation for the developed world. Great. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. We're talking to Kurt LaBelle, who's the managing partner of the Global Health Investment Fund, and we're learning about how they are spurring the development of products that can um, be useful in the developing world, but also useful in, in uh, the non-developing world. And Kurt, I have one more question about that example before we move on. So what does it actually look like, this tool? Cause How big it, is it? You, right? I think you paint the picture well of, you know, a traditional and manual blood test involves all these steps and there's room for error. So is this something you like stick your finger into and then that's the only step? Tell us what that, how it works. Yeah. So it's, uh, if you think of a, a, a regular iPhone, it's about, uh, Three quarters the length and half the width, um, so that's roughly the the size of it. Mm. And uh, at the tip of it, it has a place where the the lancet comes out, 
but the nice thing about it is once the, the finger has been pricked, it goes right back into the casing, so you're not dealing with sharps. And then it, it uh, has a little collection spot on the top of the device where you put your finger uh, and the, the little drop of blood goes right into the collection device, and then it internally collects the right volume that it needs for the test. And then there's a button at, uh, at the other end of the device that you push down, and that delivers the buffer solution, which combines with the blood to give you the test result. And then there's a, a little opening where you can see the, uh, the result of the test. Oh, so and it's, it's sort of real time? It's real time. Wow, yeah, so it's absolutely. more like a, like a traditional pregnancy test is what I'm imagining for sort of like, you know, you put it, it, a solution on and then you get some, some response. Yeah, that's exactly right. And wow. it's interesting you would say that because one, one of their partners in Europe uh, actually is using it for a pregnancy test. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're using this uh, for a blood-based pregnancy test, which can be more accurate. Oh, record. yes, yes, yes. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. And it's single-use, right? Single-use, yeah. correct. Wow. Interesting stuff. And I think a, a great example, a story we'll definitely tell again about <laughs> yeah. how folks may say, we're, you know, we're really right. focused on base of the pyramid um, needs for these, like, durable, easy-to-use, not-skilled medical professional tools. And, they're, you know, when you think about the privacy of something like pregnancy or HIV, huge up, upside in any market for someone's ability to do that discreetly yeah, at home, yeah. quickly, all that stuff. Very cool. Absolutely. Yep. Agreed. So... Um, you you're you've been at this for you know five years now making these investments. We'll round up. Yeah. Talk about some of the trends that you're seeing and um and what's what's happening now that wasn't happening five years ago. Well, I think I think one of the very interesting things uh, that actually plays very well into what we're doing is the fact that healthcare around the world and, and increasingly here in the U.S. is, is much more focused on cost-effective treatments, and the, the cost-benefit equation is something that is emphasized more and more. Um, you know, for example, when I, I've been doing, uh, I'm a physician, but who've been doing venture capital investing uh, for about 18 years now, and when I first got into the business, if you had a slightly differentiated product, uh, you know, you, you could charge basically a premium price for that, and... Uh, and, and things were pretty good. Um, now, if you want to have premium pricing, you really have to have a, a, a cost-benefit story that is extremely compelling. And so making products that, uh, that make sense economically and, and save the system money, uh, it's, it's a requirement. Hmm. And so that's, that's really something that uh, plays well into our portfolio because when we're targeting products that – uh, have to be feasible in the developing world where there isn't a, a lot of cash available for healthcare. Well, we start out from a point where that's that's driving our thinking, and increasingly throughout the world, um, that's 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 a driver for uh, for adoption of these products. Well, and and I think, we, yeah, I think the example you gave of this blood test shows one way in which you can make that that cost effectiveness. Because if you can make it more accurate, then that that sort of really says. This is really valuable. It's it's additive in important ways. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the um, the accuracy of these of these diagnostic tests plays a big role in in how cost effective they can be, and then the the efficacy, uh, obviously, of, of vaccines and and other therapeutics uh, will, will be a big story, and then the 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 cost uh, of those uh, those therapies. So, 
Yeah, that, that's been a, a trend that I've I've noticed very distinctly um, over the last you know five plus years, and uh, it's it's a part of every investment decision that we make. And as we see our companies start to market their products, it's it's part of the equation for their success. Right. Because uh, if there's not a good cost benefit story, they they really tend to struggle. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, I'm curious, and this is a question I often ask our our guests. I know um, which one it is. Do you? <laughs> I do. Do you want to guess? Impact. How do you measure your impact? Oh, no. No. That's like 1A. <laughs> that would be my next question. I was going to ask how um, how you, you wrestle with where your responsibility ends. And, and this is really, I think, probably thinking more about um, the headspace of your companies. But where I'm going with this is... You know, there are products and then there's utilization and um, cultural adoption and things like this. So uh, the example that comes to mind was, you know, when the um, Ebola outbreak happened, hand washing was a huge necessity. And it wasn't that soap was impossible to get. It actually was more available than many perceived it was. But it wasn't, you know, a cultural norm that... Um, was in place, it needed, there needed to be education. So do you have any examples or any um, advice for instances where you've seen the the necessary product in the space, but then the company's going, we need to partner with someone on the ground or somehow change, yeah, yeah, change behavior because the necessary tool is here, but we've got some other barrier that's limiting its efficacy. Yeah. I think we're really fortunate that we have such great uh, ties to the Gates Foundation, the World Health Organization, and others where but before we make an investment, we really look into um, some of those factors uh, so that we can understand them. But we, we when we make an investment, uh, we have what we call global access commitments uh, made by the companies. So huh. we, we don't just say, hey, if you get around to it, try to make this available in the <laughs> developing world. It's actually a, a legal commitment that's part of our investment, and and it can uh, vary in in what that commitment is. But usually, it's it's a commitment to make it available at a price point that is feasible, but also allows the company to make some money. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also re- um, has some requirements around the volume. And then we also try to put together a a plan um, to actually get the product out there. And I'll, I'll give one example. We. We made an investment in a company called Eontech that uh, has a handheld device that is used in cataract surgery. And in cataract surgery, you have a clouded lens, which uh, blurs the vision or can cause people to be completely blind in many cases in the developing world. And if you want to do small incision cataract surgery, um, like you do in the U.S. Uh, and Europe, you use a very expensive machine called the FACO emulsification machine to essentially melt the lens so that it can be vacuumed out and a new lens placed in. Uh, but what this company, Eontech, developed is a handheld device that has a little loop that goes around the lens, and then you can cinch the loop and essentially create uh, fragments. So you, you, you fragment the lens so that the small pieces can then be taken out and it doesn't require any capital equipment, doesn't use any energy, and can, can be made at a very low price point. So we said this is really exciting, not not just for the U.S., uh, but it's exciting for the developing world where Absolutely. they can't afford FACO equipment, and it takes hundreds of cases to, to learn FACO, whereas this can be learned uh, within a week. So that was exciting, but we had to figure out 
well, that's nice theoretically, but you know, how how do we train all these uh, these eye doctors around the world? And so, in that case, we we did. We worked with the company and said, who are the organizations out there involved in this? And and fortunately, we we found a number ranging from the Himalayan Cataract Project, which has been featured on on 60 Minutes, uh, to the Moran uh, Outreach Program out of the University of Utah. Um, to uh, the ASCRS, the American Society for Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Um, so these organizations, they're already out there trying to train local physicians, and now we're handing them a tool uh, that they can uh, that they can use in the training that uh, makes their lives mm-hmm. easier. Mm-hmm. So they can train more physicians, and and it can be sustainable with the local docs doing the procedures. So. So we do. We have these global access commitments, and then we try to put together a plan where we leverage other organizations outside of the companies uh, to to reach our goals. Well, and I think that's the great thing about you know you guys as investors. You're you're able to make those connections. If I was doing the company and I had my little little cataract machine there, mm-hmm. I might not have access into all these other organizations. But clearly, you you provide money, but also a stamp of approval and access. Yeah, and, and that's that's one of the things that uh, we we discuss a lot with the companies because sometimes when we say, "Hey, we want you to make this available in Sub-Saharan Africa," yeah, they, they go, "Whoa, oh boy, right, <laughs> this, right. is, this is going to be difficult." Uh, but we we then follow it up by saying, "Hey, look, we we know the organizations, we know the groups involved. You're not going to have to hire a bunch of people to to travel over there. We'll we'll make it easy for you with with all of these introductions." Yeah. So we really try to do that. And then once they understand that, it's it's usually something that's really attractive to them because even though I think healthcare sometimes in the U.S. is viewed as a kind of a, a um, selfish industry, I, I think most people in the industry um, in their hearts want to be doing some good. So this, this really ends up being a an attractive thing for most companies. Absolutely. Well, that's a great way for us to end this segment. It's been great learning about that, and I think the examples were really, really informative. We, we kind of Googled and saw the the uh, description of the, the blood testing machine, so that was great. We've been talking to Kurt LaBelle. He's the managing partner of the Global Health Investment Fund, and if you want to learn more about them, go, you know, go look them up because they're doing interesting things, and if you are an entrepreneur trying to create a product, you should speak with them and see about whether they're a fit with you. Kurt, thank you so much for talking with us. Okay. Thanks, Cheryl. Thanks, Andy. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 